get after it. Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 is where we'll start this morning. Good to see all of you. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. We're glad that you have joined us for worship this morning. We're in the middle of a series walking through the book of Daniel, which uh, has been exciting to go through so far. Lots of real powerful stories in Daniel. We actually talked about Daniel chapter 3 last week, and we're going to talk about it again this week. It's such a, a powerful story. We want to look at a different kind of angle um, of instruction from Daniel 3 and, and, and see another way that Daniel 3 might speak to us and might uh, communicate the truths of, of Christ to us this morning. I want to um, start by affirming a simple truth uh, with all of you Christians, as Christians, one of the things we believe, and one of the primary things we believe, is that death has been defeated. And if that doesn't kind of stir you up a little bit on the inside, right? I don't know what will, okay? As Christians, we come and we celebrate, we sing songs, we come and celebrate communion, okay? We worship Christ, and in all these things, we affirm both to ourselves and to the world around us that death has been defeated. It's a defeated enemy. Death has no power over us. There's no reason for us to be scared of death. There's no reason for us... So, so Paul would say we mourn when people die, but Christians mourn in a very specific way, right? We mourn as those who have hope, we mourn as those who know that in Christ, death has been defeated. Now, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine from history. Um, so Christians have been given examples of people who have understood this principle in strong and powerful ways um, throughout history. have understood, just at the core of who they are, that death has been defeated in Christ. And they've lived like it. Um, so I want to take you back to 202 AD. Okay, so quite a while back into North Africa, specifically a, a city named Carthage. Um, and I want to introduce you to a young lady named Perpetua. <coughs> Perpetua, uh, I consider a friend of mine. We've never met. Okay, one day we will meet. Um, but I've long been inspired and encouraged by her. She was a wealthy um, young lady in, in North Africa, and she converted to, to Christ. She um, was evangelized um, by another young man. Okay, this is not missionary dating. All right, that hasn't been invented yet. Uh, but she uh, comes to believe and, and to follow him. And in and, and this time and in this area, it's, it's a dangerous thing to believe in Christ. Okay, So when you believe in Christ, you kind of count the cost. This is something that, that I'm worth getting in trouble for. It was for a perpetua, and so she decided to follow Christ. Now, her and five of her closest friends are arrested for being Christian. And they're brought to trial, um, and they're asked, are you a Christian? Are you willing to recant and to deny Christ and deny your faith? And they respond like most Christians, okay, this was not something that would have surprised them. They would have thought about this. They would have been prepared for this. And they respond and say, no, we're, we won't recant. We're Christians. The accusation is true. And so they're sentenced, they're sentenced to um, be uh, killed by the beast in a show for Caesar's birthday. Okay, and so this is the fate of this, this young lady who just became a Christian with some of her friends. Now, actually, only five of them originally got arrested, and all five of them were new converts. They were very new to the faith. And the one man who had converted all five of them wasn't there when they got arrested. Well, when he finds out, his name was Taturus, when he finds out that they were arrested, he goes and turns himself in and says, these five are actually my fault. I'll, I'll go to prison with them. And so they're all six of them, they're convicted, and they're sentenced to, again, um, go into this kind of gladiator arena and have the beasts come on them um, for a show for Caesar's birthday, okay? Entertainment has changed a little bit, all right? But we still have Monday Night Football, okay? So there's that primal instinct, right? Um, so, so these, these new converts and then the person who evangelized them are sentenced to, to go into this arena. Now, while they're in prison, uh, the days leading up to uh, their execution, they are telling everyone in the prison and all the guards about Christ and about the life he's given them, the life he has promised to them. They're telling them about the resurrection they'll participate in. They're telling them about the judgment that those who don't believe in Christ and don't follow Christ will experience. 
And everyone is, is fairly impressed with them. Um, people are converted. Um, for years and years, people who they came in contact to in that prison would be converted um, later on as the years passed. Uh, they had a few visions that have, have, they wrote um, down, and, and records have been preserved to us. The basic gist of the vision, some of them are kind of crazy, like Daniel's visions, okay, with all these different things and, and different signs and symbols. The basic gist is that you'll be okay, right? You'll be victorious. You'll be protected. You'll have peace. And so the day comes for them to go be executed. And they, they walk to the arena. They're, they're led to the arena. And they have peace. I mean, it's an unusual sight for people who are about to be, be ripped apart by beasts. They have peace. Um, everyone has kind of heard about them, right? Or come into contact with them. They kind of know their story and what's going to go on. So they get in the arena. Two of the young men are led into the middle of the arena. And a leopard and a bear are let out. Okay? The leopard and the bear maul the two young men um, and kill them. They didn't, they didn't take uh, Saturus out, the one who evangelized the five of them. And they bring a leopard out for Saturus. Um, and when they release the leopard, he turns around and attacks the person who unleashed him. Um, so he's, he's fine. So they bring out a bear, um, try number two, and the bear won't attack Saturus either. So for the time being, they take him away. Uh, they bring out Perpetua next, um, and then another young lady, Felicitas. Um, they bring them out, and they, they let out another little wild beast. He kills um, the other young lady um, and kind of roughs up Perpetua, but she, she stays alive. Uh, they bring out Saturus one last time to try to let the beast kill him. The beast won't kill him. Um, so they bring out uh, the gladiators. That's how you would end the show uh, if, if any survivors were left after this um, experience. They bring out the gladiators Perpetua. Okay, this is my friend Perpetua. Perpetua was assigned a young gladiator um, who had never really seen this kind of thing happen before. And he was kind of overwhelmed by all that he had just experienced and all the violence and the faith that they had shown and the courage and the boldness and those types of things. And this young gladiator, for whatever reason, did, a, did not do a, a very quick and efficient job of killing Perpetua. Um, so, so he had a knife and he stabbed her a few times in the ribs real weakly and, and wounded her but, but didn't kill her. And, and he's kind of shaking. I mean, he's kind of crumbling in front of everybody here. Um, he's going to be in a lot of trouble if he can't finish his deed, can't, can't um, do what he's been told to do. And so here's the closing scene. Perpetua grabs his hand, this shaking hand, and guides the sword to her throat and helps him, helps him kill her. And she's, she's martyred. She goes down as one of many martyrs in the Christian faith who have been willing to die for their faith. Now, I want you to think about the kind of courage that that would take, the kind of boldness that, that would take, the kind of belief that in actuality, in reality, death has been defeated. And if I'm killed by a beast for Christ, or if I'm slit at my throat for Christ, it means nothing. We praise Jesus, they praised Jesus for the chance to bear witness to this truth that death had been defeated in Christ. I wonder if, if you and I, I mean, if we were to put ourselves in that position, in those shoes, if we felt like we'd have the courage to be able to do something like that. Um, now, today's story in Daniel 3, okay, which we looked at again last week, we'll look at it again today, about Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They go into the fiery furnace. Yes, think Veggie Tales, okay, but don't think Veggie Tales. It's a real powerful story. It's much more than this kind of cute moralizing tale. Um, they're just one, uh, one of the first, really, but one in a long list of martyrs, of people who have been able to stand faithful in the face of death. And the Christian church throughout history has often celebrated these people, much like uh, our, our nation celebrates those who have gone to battle for us um, and, and have fallen in battle. And we have memorial services for them and we have um, graveyards for them, those kind of things. The Christian community has also held in honor people who have died for their faith as examples, as people who can encourage us and who can challenge us uh, to live in our faith. And, and this morning, as we read Daniel 3, we, we see another one of these stories and one of the first of these stories. As Daniel and his three friends, um, again, remain faithful 
They remain faithful in a foreign context and then are even willing to pay the, the ultimate cost here. And so this is the angle we want to explore this morning. So last week we looked at how, how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't bow down to the image. And we looked at how important it is for people who are in exile to avoid idolatry and to, to remain faithful with worshiping one God and him alone. Um, and this week we want to look at this sense of, of martyrdom, of, of being willing to give up your life, of, of obeying to the point of death and of a hope and a God who can save you from that, okay? So if you would, read with me. We're in Daniel 3. We'll go ahead and pick it up in verse 8. If you remember from last week, there are a lot of long lists. I'm just going to skip them, okay, in verse 1 through 7. You remember the scene. King Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue. He wants people to worship it. He has this big ceremony involved, okay, when the music plays, everyone bows down and worships it. In verse 7, it happens, but there are a few objectors to this, this policy, okay? Verse 8, Daniel 3, verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Verse 13. The Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? He doesn't wait for them to answer in verse 15. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? What an ominous question there, right? As Nebuchadnezzar um, tries to play the, the role of one who controls death and can grant life. What God will save you from my hands? He, he gives him this ultimatum. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Verse 17 and 18, these are such powerful statements of faith. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, Nebuchadnezzar at this time is the most powerful man in the face of the earth. Okay, He is in existence the most powerful, um, just the highest that you can possibly be. Everyone bows to his will. Imagine, put, your place in, put yourself in his shoes, okay? Imagine that you're Nebuchadnezzar. No one's ever told you no, okay? And if they have, you've enjoyed watching them burn in front of you. Imagine you're Nebuchadnezzar, and you're told that there are these three Jews. Not only three Jews, but Jews you've promoted. You've been good to these guys, okay? In fact, you had no reason to promote them. You promoted them because they were friends with Daniel, who helped you out with a dream not too long ago. You promote them, you've been good to them, and they're not bowing down to your image. Now, you weren't aware of this at first. Um, some people apparently had a grudge against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They brought to your attention. But how foolish do you look at that moment, right? And so in rage, you bring them before you, and surely no one will say no to your face. And surely no one will say no 
when they can feel the heat of the flames next to them. Now imagine you're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, okay? And you're in front of the most powerful man in the world, and you can feel the heat of the flames on your shoulders, on your side, as he gives you this ultimatum. And imagine the courage that they have when they say, no, we're not going to bow down and, and worship. I don't know if you've ever been in the presence of someone who is really powerful, okay? Like really powerful, like a mover and shaker in the world. And maybe you were there for a confrontation, um, and maybe in your mind, you'd plan to say a whole lot of fun things, right? Or with your friends, you had some good one-liners for them. Okay. You had some good ideas about what they could do, where they could put things, all kinds of different ideas you had prepared in this long speech for them. And then you get in their presence and it kind of deflates out of you, right? I mean, when you're actually face to face with them, when they actually start the meeting, give you the options and then kind of stare down in your eyes and all those, those good ideas kind of, kind of melt away. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had this kind of bold faith, this courage to say, not only so that you're, to answer your question, so they don't answer his question about will they bow or not. He knows the answer. But they do answer his question to what God will be able to save them. Our God is able to save us, they say, and he will save us. And then this is an interesting part of the, the, the statement here. Even if he doesn't, we'll just die. We'll go into the fiery furnace. We're not going to fight you. We're not scared of this. There's no big deal. There's no hurrah about this. We're simply not going to obey your command to worship the statue. If that means we go into the fire, then we go into the fire. Our God can save us. He will save us. If he doesn't, oh well. We will not worship. We will not bow down to the statue. This, this, this grand statement of, of faith and, and courage here. Um, verse 19. So Nebuchadnezzar obviously doesn't like this answer. He's filled with fury. The expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. They were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. It's funny here. Probably didn't need to be bound. There's a, a long history of Christian martyrs who have said, you can save your nails and your rope, right? I mean, we'll go to our deaths. It's not... A, it's not it's not the end of the world for us, right? Literally. Um, but they, they bind him anyways. They, they have no indication they're going to resist this. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Again, interesting contrast. So the people who were serving the king end up dying by the flames. When the three young men are, are not going to end up dying by these, these flames. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace, this burning fiery furnace. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered said, That's true, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fire furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors, they all gathered together and saw that the fire had no power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire came upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. Their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So they're, they're delivered in the fire, and I think that's an important point. right? They're not saved from the fire, 
They're delivered in the fire. This is often how God works, okay? Think of even Jesus himself. He's not saved from the grave. He's saved in the grave. God raises him out. The Father raised him from the grave. He's not able to, to not experience death and suffering. And often as Christians, that's how it is. We, we don't get out of suffering. We don't get exempt from suffering. But we find God present with us in suffering. Notice also it's interesting that God's presence with them came after their commitment to him. Often we feel like it should work the other way around, right? God will be present with us, we'll experience him, and then we'll commit to him and do bold, outrageous things for him, right? But they said, he's ours, we're committed to him. If he saves us, if he doesn't save us, we're in his hands and, and we trust him. Um, and, and they are delivered, and, and then King Nebuchadnezzar again bears witness. He, he gets to see the glory of this God, and he, at least for a second, okay, glimpses the power that this God holds uh, over life and over death um, and, and gives him a small amount of glory. We'll see again, this is probably not a conversion from King Nebuchadnezzar, um, but at least for the moment he does recognize the power um, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's gods have. Now, we've been looking at the book of Daniel as a kind of parable or analogy to our situation as we are exiles in our own culture, okay? So we're exiles like Daniel was in exile. We live in a Babylon around us, a culture and an environment that often is not Christian, okay? Often doesn't believe the things we believe, act the way we act, want the things we want, because they don't know the God that we know, okay? Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're serving a very specific God, living a very specific way, and oftentimes we're living in a world around us that doesn't know that God and doesn't live that way. And so we've been taking cues from their life and from their ability to remain faithful, even in this kind of hostile environment. So we want to continue that this morning, take cues from their lives and from their actions that might encourage and challenge us to be faithful today. So number one, here's what we would say this morning. Resident aliens, that is, again, people living in this kind of exilic condition and exile surrounded by people not their own. Resident aliens must be prepared to suffer nonviolently. Resident aliens must be prepared to suffer nonviolently. Now, the scriptures teach, it's, it's pretty clear throughout the entire biblical narrative, that Christians are to have a posture of respect and obedience to the governing authorities. It might be surprising to you, considering that the, the scriptures are written by an oppressed, persecuted minority people. You might expect <coughs> revolution texts, right? Take up arms. Um, go, go assassinate the king. But that's not what you get. And pretty, pretty clearly throughout the scriptures, okay, Romans 13 is going to say, Submit yourself to the governing authorities. And the scriptures aren't even going to say only if they're just. There's no, there's no if they're good or if they're bad clause in there. Simply, God has ordained and ordered the people in power because he desires order in his world, not chaos. And your job as a Christian is to submit to them, have respect for them, honor them. This is in First Peter, throughout the scriptures. Okay? You see this even here in Daniel, right? It, it surprises some people how much Daniel and his friends are willing to help the king. And how willing they are to serve in the courts. And how willing they are to, um, to kind of be a, a good citizen, right, to this foreign evil empire. Well, well this is just kind of the, the attitude of the scriptures and the command to them. Jeremiah tells the exiles, seek the welfare of Babylon. Are they an evil, wicked nation? Sure they are, right? But when you're there, you're not seeking to, to, to crumble it from the inside. You're not seeking to, to organize this revolution. You're not seeking to assassinate Nebuchadnezzar. Um, you're, you're seeking to... To, to seek the welfare of, of their, their, their society, their, their culture, their civilization. Um, so there's this, there's this strong strand that the Christians should obey and submit to the government. But there's an equally clear strand of scriptures throughout the, uh, the, the Bible that teach that when a government or leader or a ruler, when they issue a law or a decree that goes against one of God's laws or decrees, that Christians have a higher priority, right? Christians have an, an ultimate loyalty to God. They have a higher law that they follow. Um, and so you, you see that there's this thing called civil disobedience, 
where, where someone would say, I simply can't obey that decree. Um, but I'm not, not obeying it to bring you down, right, to assassinate you, to crumble the empire from the inside. And I'm not going to fight, right? I'm, I mean, I'm not going to go against you. I'm not, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego aren't getting ready to do like some jiu-jitsu, okay, Bourne, go Jason Bourne on these guys and, and take them down. They're, they're simply saying, we'll suffer the consequences, right? But, but we're not able to fulfill this, this order that you have given us. We have a higher law. You see this in Acts chapter 5. The apostles um, are thrown into jail. They're sentenced and, and told not to preach about Jesus anymore, right? Close your mouth about this Jesus guy and the kingdom he started. And they say, we must obey God rather than men. So there are these times that the scriptures indicate, you see this with Daniel again, they did not obey the decree, Nebuchadnezzar says, but instead served their God. Where, where a Christian's duty to follow and obey God comes up in conflict against a government or ruler's duty. Now this is kind of a gray area, okay? There's no real clear indication of when this is, when this is not. Um, you often kind of get into this, right? So, so if a Christian believes it's their job to picket abortion clinics, right? And the government says it's illegal now to, push it, uh, to picket abortion clinics, right? There's this, well, are you commanded to go picket the abortion clinics? Is there other ways maybe that you could get your opinion out there, those kind of things, right? So there's often these gray areas, but there's this very clear foundational principle, which is if, if a ruler wants you to do something that will either make you go against God's will or not be able to fulfill God's will, very clearly laid out in Scripture, confirmed by your community, then you have a moral obligation to disobey. We call this civil disobedience. A good example of this from recent history is Martin Luther King Jr. Um, with the, the civil rights movement, okay? I think there are a lot of recent examples from history that we often gloss over and don't really take the full weight out of that we can. I think there are lessons we learned from Nazi Germany, okay? I think there are lessons we learned from the civil rights movement, from um, the uh, apartheid in South Africa. I think there's a lot that, that we might learn about dealing with conflict and resolution and, and things of that nature. But Martin Luther King Jr., thought that it was his job and, and the job of the people who uh, supported him and with him to disobey unjust laws. And they were very willing to accept the consequences for this. Um, and in so doing, they thought they would prick the conscience of the masses and let people have a conversation about these unjust, law, unjust laws. And so um, Luther did a, a lot of different powerful things. Um, he has a quote. He says, An individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice, is in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. Um, so, so Martin Luther King was very clear. He wasn't an anarchist, right? In fact, he thought disobeying the government and accepting the punishment was a higher regard for the law than those who would try to disobey and get out of it without a punishment or would try to crumble the government or fight against them or those kind of things. He said if, if you have to disobey by conscience, you should do so publicly, gently, lovingly, and willing to accept the full force of the law, the civil disobedience. This is what you see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego doing. They're willing to suffer. And, and it's, it's not that they're um, willing to kill to avoid suffering or those kind of things. They're just simply willing to suffer the consequences and bear witness to who their God is. This is throughout the scriptures. You see this in First Peter again, right after a passage in chapter 1 where he tells you to be subject, submit to the governing authorities, the emperors, the governors. Then it says, don't be surprised when you're persecuted. Be prepared to suffer. Be prepared when your loyalty to God might mean that you're not able to worship a statue that um, the emperor wants you to worship. Okay, So um, as Christians, as, as people who are, are resident aliens, you've got to be prepared like Nebuchadnezzar um, didn't expect um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be prepared to suffer in this way. We would say this um, this morning. Christians are, however you want to define a Christian, at the very least, a Christian is someone who is prepared to die rather than forsake Christ. 
Again, whatever you would maybe want to say about a Christian, a Christian is a person um, who would rather die than, than forsake Christ and disobey Christ and leave Christ. Now, I know this sounds really sensationalist, okay? I know this sounds really foreign to us. I know this like, what are you talking about? We live in America. Wake up, okay? Um, there's no dying going on. There's no being called to go into the gladiator arena. Um, it doesn't seem to make sense to us to ask this question. Are you willing to die for Christ, right? I mean, you're just not going to probably need to die for Christ. What does that question even mean? Um, what's the point of saying that Christians need to die for Christ or need to be prepared to die for Christ? Well, we could say a couple things. The first thing we could say is we, so you and I, okay, are an anomaly in world history. We're unusual, in the sense that we're Christians, but we're not really persecuted for being Christians. This is an unusual thing in world history. So for most of history, that's not been the case. And even globally today, that's not the case. We're this little tiny pocket of people who are Christians and, and, and are doing okay because they're Christians. It's kind of an experiment of sorts. What would happen if you had a group of Christians who weren't persecuted for their, their beliefs? And in effect, it's a really bad, it's a failed experiment, right? Well, they would be miserable people. Everyone would hate them. They'd hate themselves, okay? They'd have no idea what it meant to be a Christian. Um, it just wouldn't work very well. But, but we're this kind of anomaly in the world. So again, you have story after story after story throughout history of, of people being willing to die for the faith and having to face those consequences. And then again, I don't know if you're aware of this, but even today, right? I mean, even right now, there's a large number of Christians around the world who have to face these kind of, these kind of tests and temptations, about their faith. Um, so if you, if you look up the statistics, uh, it's, it's pretty clear. Um, so people have run the numbers and, and peer-reviewed and all that, so, so um, there's some sense of accuracy to these. Um, more Christians, it's believed, were martyred in the 20th century than in all previous centuries combined. Let that kind of weigh in, okay? More in the 20th century than all centuries combined before that. And again, these are, again, this is not just throwing numbers against the wall, pretty tight definitions of a martyr, someone who's killed for their faith um, and for not being willing to deny their faith, those kind of things, not other kind of reasons. Um, More in the 20th century than all previous centuries. Um, In 2005, okay, so not that long ago, in 2005, um, how many martyrs would you guess were there? How many people, actual number of people died for the express reason that they were Christians? Well, if you guessed 171,000, wow, that's impressive, okay? But that's the answer, 171,000, which is a lot of people. And it's surprising. It surprises me. It seems like a large number, 171,000 people died because they were Christians, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here. Now, this number changes depending on where you read. But if, you, if you're looking for a number of right now worldwide how many Christians are being persecuted, um, you would find... Two largely predominant numbers, and they're very different, but still a big number either way. 100 million or 200 million Christians right now globally being persecuted for their faith. Um, even 100 million, right, is more zeros than I can process. Uh, big difference, obviously, between the two, but, but those are the two numbers you'll probably see in, in most of the, 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 um, the data and the publications. And then this has been going around for a while, okay, um, and, and it's getting more and more confirmed by people. More and more people not Christians are agreeing to the statement. Um, but it's claimed that Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world right now. Um, that if you were to objectively just look at the world, all of humanity, and just try to pick apart what's happening, you would say this group of people who believe in Jesus, who say he died and rose again, are the most persecuted. They're the most persecuted people out of all of the world, out of all of humanity. Now, let's be real clear here, Americans, okay? I'm included here. But this is real persecution, Okay, can we make a distinction between that, right? 
a, a store saying Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas would not be considered persecution, <laughs> according to these surveys, okay, this, this data mining. Um, again, right, what happens when you get a group of people who aren't really persecuted? Well, they're like, oh, man, no one's saying Merry Christmas to me. And then the rest of the world's looking like, seriously, that's your problem? That's what you're complaining about? Um, you just look pitiful, okay? You're just miserable people over here. Um, this is real intense persecution, like physical bodily harm, lots and lots of people. So it's a real thing in the world today. These stories continue to hold real power. I think for many people who are faced with this temptation, we should pray for them. Um, we should come beside them in their struggles. I would say this as well. Even though you and I don't face death on a daily basis, okay? We don't face death for our faith, and we don't even really face death just as hum- humans, as, as humanity in general. What's happened to us is we're still scared of death. Death still drives a lot of what we do, but it takes the form of neurotic anxieties, okay? This is what a psychologist would call it. It's neurosis, right? And so what this is is you have a life or death reaction, but not to something that actually threatens your life or your death but to something that is seemingly trivial on the grand stage of history, right? So I'm in a two-bedroom apartment, and all of a sudden I can't afford to live in a two-bedroom apartment anymore. And so I'm freaking out about it. I'm yelling, calling my friends. I'm crying. It's horrible. It's horrible. Don't, I'm not, this is not a true story, okay? <laughs> Some are like, we need to start tithing more. What's going on here? <laughs> I'm not in a two-bedroom apartment to begin with. I'm sleeping in the backseat of my Saturn Ion, okay? It's pretty comfortable if you move the seatbelt just right. Um, but in a two-bedroom apartment, right? Can't afford the two-bedroom apartment, so I don't have enough money. And there's this life-or-death situation. I feel defeated. I feel upset. But there's this dot, dot, dot after this. You've got to finish your sentence, right? You don't have enough money to do what? To live in a two-bedroom apartment. So go to a one-bedroom apartment, right? It's not the end of the world. Um, you can tell if it's a neurotic fear or anxiety by whether you would be willing to stay in front of someone who actually has fears for their life, right? Or whether you'd feel kind of sheepish complaining about it. Well, my living room table doesn't match the rest of my furniture. It's a, it's a big problem in my world. And someone who's like not going to eat that day would be like, well, maybe there are bigger problems in the world, right? <laughs> now, I'm not judging you, okay? This is me. I've got my own full set of neurotic kind of things going on in, in, in my mind, all right? I, in fact, have been diagnosed with panic disorder. So my body physically has life or death reactions to things that are not life or death. That's just kind of how my mind's wired, right? Um, so I understand. I get it completely. But I think even to those types of things, the call for Christians is to seek out and understand what in their life is being driven by death, by fear, by anxiety, and then to die or be willing to die to those things. I think much of our life, whether we know it or not, is driven by this this neurotic or subconscious desire to stay alive, um, to have a better existence than the people we see around us. We want more and more and more, more money, more power, more success, more relationships, more sex. I mean, all these different things. And we run and run and run after it, never realizing that there might be this, this fear of death behind us, this neurotic fear. And to those things, just like a Christian in, in North Korea might be called to sacrifice their life, you and I should be called to sacrifice our lives to those things. I mean, I think there are these kind of neurotic anxieties you and I can die to, die to self, right? Die to the sense of, of needing more and more, die to the sense of needing self-esteem and respect and power and those kind of things. Um, and, and as Christians, I think, again, we've got to be willing to sacrifice those things. We must be, be able to say, I'd rather die to any sense of life that I have, any defined sense of life that I have, rather than forsake Christ. Which brings me to, to a, an important point, I think, which is, I really do believe without true, um, without, without this idea of martyrdom, without this willingness to die, again, maybe in your life, but maybe just for these kind of neurotic things in your life, without this, this sense of being able to die, 
You'll never be able to be obedient to the fullest extent. So we'd say that true obedience is only possible if martyrdom is a real option. True obedience is only possible if martyrdom is a real option. So the biblical narrative would tell you this, that sin brings death. So when you sin, the end game of that sin, the end result, the the end of that road is death. It births death. That's how sin ends up. It's in death. But you could flip that statement around and be just as accurate and say that death brings sin. Right? There are so many things we do to avoid death and so many things we would do if we were faced with death. I mean, imagine if someone were in front of you and was able to and willing to kill you. And they wanted you to do this or this or this. I think most of us, as kind of the comfortable Westerners that we are, would think, there's probably a long list of things I would do before I let someone shoot me. Right? I'd apologize later. Right? I'd, I'd ask for forgiveness later. I'm, I'm sure people would understand. Right? But I probably wouldn't take this hard stand of like, no, I just think that's wrong, so I'm not going to do it. And if you want to kill me, then I guess... You're going to kill me, but, but I'm not willing or able to do that. Sin brings death. And again, you see this worked out in these kind of neurotic ways um, that aren't always as clear and are more subconscious to us. But as long as you're not willing to give something up, whether it's your life or it's, again, your sense of self-worth or power or money or that kind of thing, there will always be this line that you draw where you say, I will not obey more than that. I will obey. I will follow Christ. I'll do what he's called me to do until it costs me this. Whether it's your life, the ultimate cost, or whether it's this or that, or this relationship, or this possession, or, or, or whatever it is. There'll always be this line. That's why I think for you and I, particularly in our culture and context, and, and in this exile that we're increasingly facing, we've got to get back to the sense that Christians are called to, to suffer. We're called to die. This is not an anomaly. This is the reality. This is the paradigm. We're not called to grasp at our rights, but like Christ, called to give up our rights. We're called to, to see kind of this downward mobility in the world. You'll never be able to live open-handedly if, if death, in all senses, is not a form of, it's not an option for you. It's not a real reality that you're able to face because you believe that death has been defeated by Christ. If I asked you this morning this question, I, I would wonder what all our answers would be. What are you willing to die for? I mean, if you ever made an inventory in your life, what are you willing to die for? For some, I think it might be family. Right, I think for a lot of us, a lot of the parents in the room would be, I would die for my kids. And I think that would be an honest answer. I think that would be a, a true statement. Um, what are you willing to die for? I think in a large sense, a lot of us grew up thinking that there's nothing worth dying for. Right? There's, there's, there's very few things worth our lives. There's so many things we can compromise on. There's so many things we can, we can give before we die. There's nothing worth dying for. I, I read earlier this week uh, an interesting analysis of that idea though this kind of nihilistic way of viewing the world there's nothing worth dying for which is if you think there's nothing worth dying for so that nothing can be presented to you right now that it would be worth your death if you think that then one day you're going to be faced with a very unpleasant task of dying for nothing right we're all going to die and if you think there's nothing worth dying for one day you'll have a meaningless death but if you think there maybe are things worth dying for Maybe someone worth dying for. That's something that, that you might prepare yourself for, experience now, and or experience when you're 80 or 105 years and you've lived out this long, healthy life. Um, one of the, the accomplishments historically of the Enlightenment, of, of kind of the turn of history into modernity, was that we were able to figure out a way to stop people from killing each other over God. 
So for years and years and years, there have been these bloody wars. He's almost never ending wars and battles over different gods, okay? The Protestants fought the Catholics. The Protestants and the Catholics fought the Muslims, okay? It just seemed like no, the world was never going to go anywhere because we couldn't stop killing each other because of religious beliefs. So what arose was this concept of the nation-state and this idea that we could boil down religions to the common denominator, right? So we all believe in a god. He's all-powerful, okay? He created the world. And as long as we don't get more specific than that, we can all exist peacefully together. But what happened, and, and this is ironic and curious historically, is you didn't stop the need for killing, right? All that changed in the past few hundred years is no longer do men and women kill each other for God. Now we kill each other for the nation, for the nation-state, um, and when someone goes to protect the nation state, when someone goes to serve for the nation state and, and they die on the battlefield, they're honored as people who gave up their life um, because we think that the nation uh, is something worth dying for, right? There's this, I think in most of us, there's a strong sense of, of feeling that the freedom that we have as Americans, particularly contrasted to, to different examples of civilization we've seen in the past, is something worth protecting, and people who are brave enough to go protect that for us should be celebrated and, and honored. Um, but I would want to, again, in your mind, right, in our context, how would someone who decided to go serve in a mission field in a place where they were most likely to be killed, would they be seen differently than someone who decided to go into the military in a, in a place where they were most likely to be killed? I think in my own experience, I would say there'd be a big difference, Right. <laughs> Um, I've seen this happen in, in front of me. When someone decides to go serve in the military, their family's probably concerned and a little worried, but for the most part, it's celebrated. They're very proud of it, right? You put a sticker on the back of your car. Um, people honor you as a hero. I mean, it's, it's a celebrated thing. You're going to do something important. You're going to go die for something worth dying for. Um, but when a young man or young woman comes to their parents okay, and says, I want to go serve in this or that country, um, there's a large chance I'll be killed there. The response is a little bit different, I believe. Again, just my experience, maybe you see something different. The response is that's really irresponsible, <laughs> right? Go to college, get a good job, okay? What are you doing? Go serve in the military, do anything, right? But go get killed for Jesus. You can evangelize all kinds of people right here, right? And you'll never get hurt, those kind of things. It's not as honored. It doesn't seem like something um, as valuable to us. And I wonder if there's a, a shift of priority, a shift of, or, or at least a forgetting of the importance of the mission of Christ and the importance of a Christian's ability to say, if I suffer, I suffer. And if I die, I die. But if Christ goes me to, tells me to go somewhere or do something, that's not on my radar. That's not something in consideration for me. Again, as a Christian, I believe death has been defeated. Um, again, it's worth comparing, I think, the meaningless death of those who serve the king to the meaningful Ability to die by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Again, they don't die, but it's important to notice the principle remains the same. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go to the fiery furnace not because it's a strategy to get them out of the situation, right? They go because of a principle, which is we won't bow down. There's no guarantee that they'll be delivered from the fire. And the story, I don't think, changes if they're not rescued from the fire. There have been many throughout history that go to their death and they're not rescued. And that's not something that they misread in Daniel 3, right? If he does not, so be it. We'll go to the fire. Why? Not because we think we're getting saved, but because we know we'll find God there. And whether he saves us then or saves us later, um, we'll be delivered out of your hand, King Nebuchadnezzar. It's an interesting twist there in the language. Um, he's able to save us from the furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand. And the furnace or not in the furnace, we'll be delivered from your hand. You're not the, the ultimate king of, of 
life or death here. Um, so martyrdom, there's something about martyrdom, giving up your life, that's, that's important. It has been important throughout the history of the church in the sense that it's the seemingly the ultimate witness to Jesus' victory over death. So again, as Christians, we believe Jesus has defeated death. That's a very powerful thing for us. Hebrews 2, okay, in a very important passage, would say that you and I are enslaved to the devil by the fear of death that he controls, he owns. And one of the things Jesus does, he cuts that cord so that we can live as those who aren't afraid of death, right? Who can go to our crosses just like Jesus went to his cross, who, who know a God who's more powerful and, and bigger and stronger than death itself. Um, Daniel, again, he, he, uh, Daniel's friends are able to, to do this. They um, are able to, to walk this bold line into the, the fiery furnace. There's nothing, there's nothing that communicates, I think, so clearly what Christians believe than someone who's willing to die for their faith. I think that's one of the reasons we tell the martyr stories over and over and over and over again. Because it's one thing to say, death has no power, death has no sting, death's been defeated. It's another thing to see a human being look death in the face and go, I know Jesus. This doesn't mean much to me right now. And the world around that watches that gets a really strong, clear message. It's this powerful witness Again, I think this works even in our kind of neurotic context, right? Where we might not be dying to our actual physical life, but when we die to ourselves, and when we die to our sense of purpose, and when we die to our sense of self-esteem and power and, and respect and those kind of things, the world around us looks at us and goes, why are they willing to do that? What is stronger to them than that tie that, that binds and fuels and motivates the entire world? How they've been severed from that rat race. Well, it's through Christ, it's through his example, it's through, through his resurrection, his victory. We would say that the martyr's courage is only possible, the only way you can explain it is through the hope of resurrection. Okay, so Daniel and his friends would have had the strong story as Israelites of the Exodus. They'd have known who their God was. Their God's the one who takes you out of slavery into freedom. Their God's the one that has never met a foe too powerful for him. Their God is the God of the living, not the dead. Um, and their God is with them. Um, you and I have Jesus' resurrection in front of us. We have his death and his resurrection. This, this shining example of not only death's power being broken, but also our participation in that death being broken. This promise that you and I will be raised from the dead. And, and I don't think without a resurrection, you have a possibility to, to, to have martyrdom. And again, I don't think without martyrdom, you have a possibility to be obedient. I think there's an interesting link of possibilities that you see there. And I think at times, you and I have missed out on a couple of those links, and so the whole process has kind of gone, off, gone astray on us. Um, you can't have obedience without the possibility of dying for it, and you can't have the possibility of dying for it if you don't believe God's going to give you that life back again. And as I talked about in the, the resurrection series, I do think a physical resurrection, this belief that God will actually raise us in a new heavens and a new earth, is important to this. I don't think you get martyrdom with a belief in heaven after you die. This kind of new radical experience, okay? So as a kid, there were lots of things I wanted to experience as a human being. And I didn't want Christ to come back too early, okay? Because I wanted to do certain things, right? I wanted to see the Rockets win a championship. Check, okay? Wanted to, to do this or do that or do this or do that. And so, yeah, I'd love Christ to come back. That's all great. But if he could hold off until I can really experience the full gamut of things you experience on this great earth, that would be amazing as well. Um, and, and then again, particularly, heaven sounds really kind of boring to me. Um, I mean, as a seven-year-old kid, I had anxiety attacks about heaven itself, okay? It was this terrifying thought to me. I, I, as a little kid, I'm philosophizing, okay? I'm going, I would rather have non-existence after like a thousand or two years of this boring kind of angelic church service, right? This just doesn't seem interesting to me. Things I like, I don't want to do that long, much less things I don't like, okay? And things that, that don't seem that interesting to me. Um, so if I, 
if that's what I believe is waiting for me, that's a reward for me, I'm not very willing to give up the things I can experience right now for that. If I think I can still get that without giving them up. Does that make sense? I don't need to go over there and die for my faith to be a Christian. If I go do that, I'll miss out on all these other things that I could experience while still being a Christian. I'll choose this one. Right? And I'll celebrate the people who maybe, unfortunately, can't see the logic and go do this other stuff. But if you believe God's going to raise you from the ground, you're going to come out of the grave, you're going to experience all that life has to offer on this beautiful earth. Transformed, renewed, a fuller, bigger, better life than you could ever get right now. You're going to be a lot more willing to go do whatever Christ tells you to do. There's not going to be a line that you draw. There's not going to be anything you think you're going to miss out on. Because there's no reason for you to think you're going to miss out on anything. You'll be back. There's a, a story in 2 Maccabees about um, seven sons and their mother, and they're being martyred by um, the Maccabean ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, and, 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 and he is, him and his guards are torturing them. And, and they're taunting him. It's this kind of humorous, graphic, gory, horrible story where these, these little kids are, are being watched by their mothers. They're being tortured. And they're like making fun of the king as they're being killed. So, so he cuts off an arm. And they're like, take the other arm. We'll get them back in the resurrection. right? And he cuts off their tongue. And they're like, we'll get our tongues back in the resurrection as well. I mean, as they're being dismembered, they're going back on him. Why? Because this, this belief in resurrection was so strong in them. Um, it, it sustained them even through this kind of most horrible experience. We'll get to Daniel 12 eventually in our study. And in Daniel 12, you see this promise that all will sleep. Some will be raised to glory and some will be raised to shame. This promise of resurrection. And I think you and I are supposed to read Daniel 3 in light of Daniel 12. And see that sense of assurance undergirding the behavior of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here in, in chapter 3. So again, I think... This morning as we, we read the story and, and we think of and remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there's a sense where I think we should be challenged. We should be challenged to ask ourselves these probing questions. Are we willing to die for Christ? Have we drawn a line in the sand of obedience? And there's this sense where we should be encouraged to realize like they did, that's, that's been defeated. Christ has saved us. We are his. There's this joy in this life that, that surpasses the fear of death. That's, that's, that's unthinkable and, and not understandable to people who don't know Christ. I'll close with another one of my favorite stories. It's from the, the 1960s in North Korea. There's a, a small congregation there led by a, a guy named Pastor Kim. And it was about 27 people in the congregation. And at this time in North Korea, in the 1960s, it's, it's very legal to, to be a Christian. And they're rounded up and arrested, and they're brought before an arena in Goksan to be executed. And for whatever reason, I don't know why this happened, I don't know if this is a regular thing, but about 30,000 people shows up to, to see this execution. And it somehow turned into this big political kind of event. And they showed up to, to see this, this congregation killed in front of them. And, and they, they bring them in front of the arena, okay, surrounded by people, and they ask them, will you renounce Christ? And of course, Pastor Kim and his congregation go, no, we want to renounce. Thanks for asking, it's very respectful, but we're not, we're not going to renounce Christ. Uh, he's our Lord, and, and we're his people. And so they take the children of the congregation, and they bring them out from the adults, and they put some rope around their necks. And they prepare them to be hung. And they go back to the parents. And they say, would you like to renounce Christ? 30,000 people watching. Well, they don't answer at this time. They look at their children instead and go, we love you. We'll see you soon. You know why this is happening. 
You know why we can't stop this. We're prepared to suffer. And then they, they have the Christians lie down. And they bring out a steamroller. And they, they have them lie down. And they're going to just kind of roll over them. And as the steamroller is inching towards them, the, the people who are there report, I mean, they've never seen anything like this. The congregation breaks out in this hymn, like a flash mob of martyrdom. And they're singing this hymn called More Love to Thee as they're, they're slowly crushed to death in front of this, this large crowd. I'll, I'll read the lyrics of the prayer maybe for us this morning. More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Thee alone I seek, more love.